Let's open in our Bibles Jeremiah chapter number 8 this morning. Jeremiah chapter number 8. And uh, what a blessing to be here today. And uh, they tell me, did we lose our football game last night? Is that what happened? You came to church anyway. Amen. I'm proud of you. And uh, thankful that you're here today. And uh, that's all right. You should have known we weren't going to keep winning. Somebody say amen to that. And uh, you say, preacher, ain't you a Tennessee fan? Yeah, and that's a sad part of it. Imagine how I'd talk about them if I didn't like them. Amen. All right, Jeremiah chapter number 8 this morning. And again, what a blessing to have you here. I trust that God is going to do a work in your heart and life this morning. That's what we've come for. Uh, we didn't come just to be somewhere. We came to be where God was. We came because we believe the Lord will meet with us. And that's why we're here today. I trust that's why you're here today. If it's not, we ought to get our heart trained on that. We didn't just come to hear a message. and We didn't come just to hear singing. And uh, we, we've heard beautiful singing this morning. That's not why we came. Uh, and you'll hear a message, but I trust you didn't come just to hear a sermon. I trust you came to hear from the Lord today. I believe we'll have our heart open to the truth of the Word of God. I believe God will speak to us. This is a living book, the Bible is. And it's not living in the sense that it's changing, but it's living in the sense that it is it is sensitive to our lives. It knows what we're going through. The author does. He, he has the ability to apply it to our hearts and minds. And so I trust you came with that intention this morning. Jeremiah chapter number 8. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 4. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, as he is uh, often called, uh, writing to the children of Judah during a time of rebellion in the kingdom. Uh, the word of the Lord says this in verse 4. Moreover, thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord, shall they fall and not arise? Shall he, shall the Lord, turn away and not return? Why then is this people of Jerusalem slidden back by a perpetual backsliding? They hold fast deceit. They refuse to return. I hearkened and heard, but they spake not aright. No man repented him of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Every one turned to his course as the horse rusheth into the battle. Yea, the stork in the heaven knoweth her appointed times, and the turtle and the crane and the swallow observe the time of their coming, but my people know not the judgment of the Lord. How do ye say we are wise, and the law of the Lord is with us? Lo, certainly in vain he made it. The pen of the scribes is in vain. The wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken. Lo, they have rejected the word of the Lord, and what wisdom is in them? Therefore will I give their wives unto others and their fields to them that shall inherit them. For every one from the least even unto the greatest is given to covetousness. From the prophet even unto the priest, every one dealeth falsely. For they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed, neither could they blush. Therefore shall they fall among them that fall. In the time of their visitation they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. I will surely consume them, saith the Lord. There shall be no grapes on the vine nor figs on the fig tree, and the leaf shall fade, and the things that I have given them shall pass away from them. Why do we sit still? Assemble yourselves and let us enter into the defense cities and let us be silent there. For the Lord our God hath put us to silence and given us water of gall to drink because we have sinned against the Lord. We looked for peace, but no good came. And for a time of health and behold trouble. The snorting of his horses was heard from Dan 
The whole land trembled at the sound of the neighing of his strong ones. For they are come and have devoured the land and all that is in it, the city and those that dwell therein. For behold, I will send serpents, cockatrices among you, which shall, which will not be charmed, and they shall bite you, saith the Lord. When I would comfort myself against sorrow, my heart is faint in me. Behold, the voice of the cry of the daughter of my people, because of them that dwell in a far country. Is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their graven images and with strange vanities? The harvest is past. The summer is ended. We are not saved. For the hurt of the daughter of my people am I hurt. I am black. Astonishment hath taken hold on me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for the word of God, Lord. Thank you for a source of strength and of wisdom. Lord, in in a world that's lost its mind, we still have the mind of God and the mind of Christ in this precious book. And I pray that we would hold dearly to it, that, Lord, it not be something that, that we treat lightly, but, Lord, that we would treat it with all respect and reverence that it deserves, that it's the very Word of God. And, Lord, we've assembled here today as Your people because we want to hear from You. Lord, we have needs in our life that we are aware of, and I'm sure there are needs in our life that, Lord, we're not aware of. But, Lord, You know all of them. And we pray that you would deal with us, not according to our will and what we want, what we're looking for, but Lord, according to your will, for we know that your will is better than ours. I pray, Lord, if there's any that are lost amongst us, Lord, playing church, playing religion, that you would show them that this morning. And Lord, if they already know it, I pray that they quit fighting you, they quit running from you, they would quit, Lord, being being satisfied on uh, the things that the world gives and, and, and the assurances that their conscience gives, and instead they just get real honest with you. Lord, they'd come to you and they'd, they'd be saved and they'd get that matter resolved. Lord, they'd start a new life in Christ. And Father, we'll be sure to thank you for what takes place today. For if anything's done, it won't be us that's done it. Lord, it'll be you and you deserve the glory. Lord, we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. The book of Jeremiah is a book of sorrow. As we said a moment ago, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He is tasked with a difficult ministry. Uh, if you study the history of the uh, nation of Israel, you'll find that uh, after the reign of Solomon, his son Rehoboam ascends the throne. And because of some unwise decisions that he makes in his leadership, the kingdom is split into two different kingdoms. There's a northern kingdom of Israel. That's the ten tribes that dwell in the northern part of the land. And then there is the southern uh, kingdom of Judah. And that's the southern two tribes of Benjamin and Judah. And these two kingdoms, their histories sort of run parallel one to another. There are times of seeming revival in the kingdom of Judah. But the kingdom of Israel has an unbroken record of rebellion against God. There's never a time when they're worshiping the Lord the way that He deserves to be worshipped and serving Him the way that He deserves to be served. And so under the uh, leadership... Uh, of the Assyrians, of uh, Tiglath-Pileser, the Assyrian Empire comes and annihilates the northern ten tribes, carries them away into captivity. You'd think this would have served as a pretty good warning to the southern kingdom. You'd think they would have looked at it and said, you know, these people chose to not follow God and it led to their destruction. We better get right. We better live right. We better do right. 
But instead, they persisted in their disobedience of the Lord. Another hundred, hundred fifty years passes, and and they have some bright moments, some moments when it looks like maybe they're going to turn the corner. There's a revival under King Hezekiah, but it doesn't last. Uh, there's a revival under King Josiah, but it doesn't last. And continually, it's like they're always on the cusp of getting right and doing right. Every time they get right up close to it, they seem to slide back away from it. In fact, we have that biblical term in our text in verse 4, a perpetual backsliding. Hey, listen, if somebody's going to slide back, they probably took a step or two forward in the first place. And that was what the kingdom of Judah had done. Uh, Now, uh, it is no longer the Assyrians, it is the Babylonians that have entered the world stage. They are a fierce enemy and they've set their sights on the southern kingdom of Judah. In fact, uh, they've already fell upon and sieged the city of Jerusalem once and carried away all the seed royal of Judah. You can read a little bit about that in the book of Daniel. He was one of those young men. And God calls a man by the name of Jeremiah, a prophet, to come and to preach to the kingdom of Judah. He tells Jeremiah, just as he later would tell Ezekiel after the captivity, that though he goes to these people and preaches to these people, they're not going to listen to the message that he gives them. That they have crossed a threshold, they have crossed a boundary. The judgment of God is set upon them. And so here's Jeremiah's task. He's called like a court recorder, like a witness, just to be there, to be the voice of God to this generation, and to weep for them, to show them the broken heart of God over their sin and their disobedience. We can see this background of coming judgment in our text. The prophet begins to sort of look forward as to what that will be like. Verse 13 says, I will surely consume them saith the Lord, there shall be no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree, and the leaves shall fade, and the things that I have given them shall pass away from them. He sees a land laid barren by these destructive invaders. He says, why do we sit still? Assemble yourselves and let us enter into the defense cities. He said, why are you dwelling outside the walls? We might as well try to get inside where it's safe. But then he says this, let us be silent there, for the Lord our God hath put us to silence and given us the water of gall to drink because we have sinned against the Lord. He said, it's not going to do any good to go in there and weep and cry and pray. Judgment is set. We might as well go inside the city and sit there and wait for the judgment of God to fall. He says in verse 15, this is sort of how it feels like in our country today. Verse 15, he says, we looked for peace, but no good came. And for a time of health and behold trouble. Can I tell you this? Listen, I know this will upset somebody to hear, but it don't matter who's in the White House until the church house starts doing something right. Until we start getting right with God, I mean, listen, we're going to continue to see these societal ills take place. I mean, you call it whatever you want to call it, but we're going to keep seeing the judgment of God in our country until we as a people start repenting and seeking the Lord. And you can attribute it to this party or that party or no party or whatever. I don't even know why they're calling it a party. I like parties I go to to be fun. Amen? Ain't nothing fun about that. Uh, But at the end of the day, until we get right with God, it's not going to matter. And I I feel like every few years we look for peace, but no good comes. Every few years we look for a time of health, but behold, trouble comes. He says in verse 16, the snorting of his horses was heard from Dan. When the Bible would talk about Israel, it would talk about it from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. When it's talking about Dan, it's talking about the Babylonians coming down from the north to invade. In other words, they're saying we can already hear the judgment of God 
coming to this place. The whole land trembled, he said, at the sound of the neighing of his strong ones, for they are come and have devoured the land and all that is in it, the city and those that dwell therein. Verse 17, uh, the Lord likens his judgment to serpents. He said, I will send serpents, cockatrices among you, which will not be charmed. You remember in the book of Numbers, whenever the people grumbled against the Lord, uh, the Lord sent serpents, fiery serpents among them. It doesn't mean they were serpents that were on fire, but it means that their bite burned and was painful and was deadly. They could be saved from that if they would look up to a brazen serpent, a brass serpent that had been hung on a pole uh, the Lord had instructed Moses to do. And they could look up at that serpent and be saved. My pastor, you say, you know the difference between the serpent on the ground and the serpent on the pole. The serpent on the pole didn't have no venom in it. In other words, that serpent on the pole in the book of John, the Lord Jesus said that as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up. What was the difference between the man on the cross and all the men standing around? The only difference was the man on the cross had no sin in him. Amen? And you could look to Him and believe on Him and be given life and life everlasting. But now He says, I'm going to send serpents and uh, they will not be charmed. He says they will bite you and there will be no healing from it. The judgment of God will fall upon you and there will be nowhere to turn. Jeremiah says, when I would comfort myself against sorrow, my heart is faint in me. Behold the voice of the cry of the daughter of my people because of them that dwell in a far country. Is not the Lord in Zion, he said? Is not her king in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their graven images and with strange vanities? He said, wonder of wonders that this people, he would say in chapter 2, have traded the fountain of living water for broken cisterns that can hold no water. Imagine Israel here, this little island of worship of the true God, surrounded by pagan Gentile nations, and instead of uh, clinging and cleaving to the true God, they forsake the true God and worship the gods of their pagan neighbors. What a tragedy this is. Jeremiah says, hey, we've got the real God. The Lord's in Zion. The King is in Zion. Why have they chased after these false gods? Verse 20 has that devastatingly blunt statement about their situation. He says, the harvest is past. The summer is ended. We are not saved. Such was the ministry of this man, Jeremiah, to come to this doomed generation and preach to them, of the impending judgment of God. They called him a treasonous traitor because God's word to Jeremiah to the children of Israel was this, don't fight the invaders, they're the judgment of God. Just go ahead and accept what is your lot because you have trespassed against the Lord. Man, imagine having a ministry like that. And when you look here at at the precious uh, people of God, the apple of God's eye, the question has to be asked, how did they end up in this situation. What was it that led to them being here? I think verse number 4 and 5 gives us an indication. The Bible says in verse 4, Moreover, thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord, Shall they fall and not arise? Can I say this? Failure is not final. If you mess up, if you get messed up in your relationship with God, and you choose not to go on and live for the Lord, it ain't because God wants to pick you back up and help you. Shall they fall and not arise, he says? Shall he turn away and not return? No matter what you've done to trespass the Lord, he would accept you back. He would turn his face of favor back upon you and bless you once again. He says, why then is this people of Jerusalem slidden back by a perpetual backsliding? They hold fast deceit. They refuse to return. In other words, God says the problem wasn't that they couldn't get right. 
The problem wasn't that I wouldn't help them get right. The problem is that over and over and over again, they would make these incremental steps in the right direction, but inevitably, invariably, they would slide back again and again and again and again. And every time I tried to help them to get right and live right, they would make steps, they would make effort, but then they'd slide back with this perpetual backslide. Why is it that this would take place? I think we have an answer to this in verse number 11. In condemning the corrupt leaders of the day, the Lord says this, For they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. You know the only thing worse than never getting right with God is getting a little right with God and then sliding back to a worse place than what you're in in the first place. The Bible in the New Testament, the Lord taught this principle when He spoke about a man that had uh, a, a devil within him and that devil was cast out of him. And instead of then pursuing the Lord and filling up that void in his life with the things of God, he just left his life in a state of emptiness. In other words, he got rid of that devil, but he didn't get closer to God in its absence. And the Bible says that whenever that devil came home, he found that place swept, and, and clean. That's why, that's why I'm against uh, sweeping. Somebody say amen. When he finds that place swept and clean, here's what the devil does. He looks around and he says, look at all this room in here. <laughs> There's room for far more than just me. Goes out and finds seven other devils and comes back. The Bible says the end of that man is worse than the beginning. Now what was that man's problem? His problem was not that he got the devil out. The problem was he never got the Lord in. He would have been better off if he had never got the devil out in the first place if he wasn't going to get the Lord in. Self-reformation outside of the power of God and outside of the life of Christ, it is not just a neutral proposition. It's a devastatingly destructive habit. It will leave you in worse shape than you was in in the first place. How did Israel get in this shape? I'll tell you how. Because their faith in the Lord was always slight. They were slightly the people of God. Not thoroughly the people of God. They were just slightly the people of God. You know what's happening in our country today? There's a lot of people walking around that are just slightly a Christian. Their Christianity is cultural and nothing more. It happens to be the avenue that they align with and, and they allow it to be a component of who they are. But the idea that it is the sum total of who and what they are, that it is an all-devouring passion in their life. Hey, listen, if we ain't to the place that lost people think we're fanatics, we ain't doing this thing right. I mean, what does it suggest that we will only let our Christianity be so deep that it does not make the world uncomfortable with us? Something's wrong in our perspective. And I'll tell you the problem, the reason our country... Hey, we're a country founded on biblical principles. We're not a country that was founded upon rank paganism. How did we get where we're at today with the judgment of God looming over? All I hear people doing anymore is sitting around trying to piece out and figure out how much of what's happening is due to incompetency and how much of it is due to the abject judgment of God. How did we get to this place? I'll tell you how. By perpetual backslide. We got to the place where we were fine to relegate Christ to just being a component of our cultural identity and no longer being the sum total. We got comfortable being slightly Christians. Not thoroughly, not completely, not passionately, just I'm slightly a Christian. 
Now, what does that look like in a person's life? I want you to notice four or five or eight things. We'll see how this goes. <laughs> now, I want you to notice a few things in our text that tells us what it looks like when someone is just slightly a Christian. I'm not talking about sold out for the Lord Jesus. And by the way, when I'm talking about Christianity, I'm not talking about it synonymous with salvation. If a person can be saved by the grace of God on their way to heaven, and there not be anything identifiably Christian in the way they live their life. Nothing about their life looks Christian, but they have at some point put their faith in the Lord Jesus. They're living a life of emptiness. They're living a life of misery. They're living a life that is a detriment to the testimony of Christ. Uh, but I would say this, even those of us that are saved, born again by the grace of God, and we are as saved as ever we're going to be in regards to how God views us, that don't mean necessarily that we're sold out for the Lord Jesus Christ. Even we can be slightly Christian. Well, what does that look like? Well, in our text, the Lord sort of details the conditions and climates of the children of Israel. And he mentions five things. Notice them with me and we'll be done. Verse number 6, the Lord says this, I hearkened and heard. Now what's he talking about? He's saying, I was willing to hear them if they would have repented. If they were willing to confess their sins to me and admit that they were lost, admit that they were broken, and admit that their society was, was devastated and bankrupt morally and spiritually, he said, my ear was bent, my ear, my ear was not heavy, he says, my arm was not shortened, as he says in the book of Isaiah, I was willing to hear, I was willing to listen, I was willing to help. But he says this, but they spake not aright. What did they do? No man repented him of his wickedness, saying, what have I done? He said, instead, this is what they did. Everyone turned to his course as a horse rusheth into the battle. Number one symptom, uh, mark it down this morning, of being slightly a Christian is your willfulness in regards to your relationship with the Lord. God said, I was willing, but they weren't willing. I would have listened had they been willing to repent. But they refused to admit the way they were living was wrong. And here's why. Because they didn't want to change courses. I'm just going to make a real blunt statement this morning. A lot of us refuse to repent of our sins because we ain't done with them anyway. We, we, we feign ourselves sincere and genuine enough that we would not want to tell God we know it's wrong and ask His forgiveness and, and say we're going to repent when we have no intention of it. We at least grant ourselves that level of sincerity. And so we are unwilling to acknowledge the error, the wickedness of how we're living because if we acknowledged it, we would either have to be a hypocrite or we'd have to get right. So instead, we just stay living the way we're living and just pretend as though the way we're living is right. You know what we're doing? We're exerting our will above His will. We're saying, I'm the alpha. I'm the one in control. I'm the one that runs my life and not the Lord. Well, listen, you can live that way if you want. But if you want to be thoroughly Christian in your character, your conduct, and in your composition, you're going to have to submit your will to His will. Because the only way you become like Christ is by letting the life of Christ be lived through you. And the only way the life of Christ is lived through you is if His will is done and not your will. We have for far too long, and I've got to be careful, I'll get in the ditch here if, I, if I'm not careful, but for far too long, we have made Christianity a matter of imitation. And nowhere in the Bible is it suggested that we ought to try our best to kind of be like Jesus. 
Rather, the biblical description is that we are mortified. We have been crucified with Christ. Our ambitions, our will, our life has been put to death. And as Paul said, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. He doesn't say faith in the Son of God. He says by the faith of... In other words, it's His faith living through us who loved me and gave Himself for me. Now, how do we do that? How does that take place? Well, by the indwelling of the Spirit of God. Him administrating and coordinating and governing our life and us us ceding to His decision and His will and His leadership. But slight Christianity, it wants the trappings of Christianity, but it wants that to merely be a veneer for its own willfulness. A refusal to let God have His will and His way. And by the way, they did not just do it uh, impassionately, but they did it fervently. It says, as the horse rusheth into the battle. You know, that's how people live that know they're living wrong. You know how you get a horse to rush into battle? Horse doesn't crave battle. But you get it so stirred up, you get it so wound up, you get it so lathered up that it is mad with excitement and it will just rush headlong into a field of soldiers. You know, that's how a person lives when they know they're living wrong. They know they can't stop and consider their actions because if they do, they'll think better of it. So they instead have to grit their teeth, pull on the reins, spur hard as they can, and run headlong into their bad decisions. Because if they ever stop long enough to ask themselves, is this the will of God? They already know what the answer is. That's the way we live when we're doing our will and not His will. Because it's the way we have to live. You know why every single New Testament born-again believer, what that means is people that are saved right now, living ever since Calvary to today, people that are saved, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And you don't even have to tell on yourself. If you stop long enough to think about the way you're living, the Holy Ghost will tell you whether what you're doing is right or is wrong. So instead, they just have to, with blind determination, exert their will. We see the horse rushing into the battle. Here's the second thing, verse number seven. Yea, the stork in the heaven knoweth her appointed times. Now, what that means is uh, the stork would migrate. In other words, it would go uh, from one place to another according to the seasons. He goes on to say the turtle, and very likely that's talking about a turtle dove. I don't know if turtles migrate. Somebody text me later and tell me, but I suspect it's talking about a turtle dove. Amen? And then the crane and the swallow likewise observe the time of their coming. In other words, they know when it's time to change course. They know when it's time to turn around and head the other direction. And in fact, that is basically the sum total of their course. When birds migrate, they go from one place to another. Uh, they, Whenever it's hot, they go up north. Whenever it's cold, uh, they go down south. Some of y'all have learned that too. Amen? Kathy, I'm talking about you. See, these birds, they have enough sense to know when the weather's changing and it's time to turn and to go back. But you know what he says? He says about his people, he says, but my people... No, not the judgment of the Lord. I would say not only their willfulness, but their waywardness. They're unwilling to recognize when time is up and it's time to get right and live right and do right. They turn a deaf ear and a blind eye to what is the obvious impending judgment of God. And they continue to persist in the same course that they were already on. You know why that is? Because slight Christianity really doesn't care that much what God thinks. That's not the the prevailing purpose of it. 
The purpose is not to please the Lord in how we live. The purpose is rather to please others and to please ourselves in how we live. And so whether God is pleased or displeased is really of no material importance to the person who is only slightly a Christian. And so they'll continue to stray from the Lord, to wander from the Lord. Even when they know the direction they're going is wrong, they'll persist in it because their intention was never to please the Lord in the first place. He speaks of their waywardness. Look at verse number 8 and gives us a third thing. He says, how do ye say... We are wise, and the law of the Lord is with us. Now, God uses some poetic language here. He says, Lo, certainly in vain made he it. The pen of the scribes is in vain. Now, God is not saying that the word of God is vanity. He's not even necessarily explicitly saying the word of God is pointless. He's saying you claim that you believe the Bible, but nothing in your life is biblical in nature. He's saying, you say that you love the law of the Lord. We say the law of the Lord is with us. But he said, if that's the case, it's pointless that he ever wrote a Bible if you're not going to listen to it anyway. Verse number 9, he says, the wise men. He's talking about spiritual leaders. He says, the wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken. By the way, you know what he's saying there? Let me take a little bit of a detour here. It's only 1045. You've got hours before you don't believe that, do you? Don't look at the clock now. You know, you know what he's saying here? He's saying, they've been telling you all these years that nothing bad was going to happen. Don't they look foolish now? Can I just say, hey, listen, pe- people have been criticizing old-time preachers of the Word of God for a lot of years. Uh, listen, there was a time when preachers would stand up and they, they'd say things like, you know, God created them male and female and there's very distinct roles in, in the home and in, in society and those things aren't things to be jettisoned and, and, and criticized and, and, and diminished. Those are things that we ought to encourage and emphasize because God's wisdom is better than our wisdom. And everybody said, oh, you just, you're just old-fashioned, you're just old fogey. And now people don't know which bathroom to go in. I'd say this, man, some of them old-timers been proven right. Hey, there was, there was a time, listen, some of y'all gonna have stuff from 60 years ago you're about to repent of. There was a time back in many skirt days, preachers get up and preach about modesty. Right? And, and they, and they would say, they would say, hey, listen, is it right? A lady ought not dress that way, ought not act that way. Uh, there are some things that are only for the eyes of the husband and nothing else. And everybody said, oh, those old, old legalistic fundamentalist preachers. You been down to Walmart lately? Now listen, we can snicker at it, but here's the reality. That crowd that said this don't lead to nothing worse, they're awful quiet now, aren't they? You know why? It's been proven that they were wrong. Those that went contrary to the truth of the Word of God, it's been proven that they were wrong. The wise men, he says, are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken. He said that very crowd that said that trouble wasn't ever going to come, those are the first ones that Nebuchadnezzar carted off. They're in chains today is what he says. This is why, lo, they have rejected the word of the Lord. What wisdom is in them? Not only their willfulness and waywardness, but their wickedness. You see, they were living an unbiblical life. You want to know how biblical your life is? Open the Bible and see if how you're living lines up with what the Bible teaches. Let's just make this thing real, real simple this morning. Don't worry about what your favorite hotshot evangelist thinks. Don't worry about what your favorite megachurch pastor on television thinks. Just open your Bible and ask yourself, does my life look like New Testament Christianity? If it doesn't, you're more concerned with pleasing them than you are with pleasing Him. 
On the converse, if our life is lined up with the Word of God, that's the only way to be thoroughly Christian in our way of living. You know this to be true. You've heard this before, but the first time the term Christian is used, it's used in a derisive way in the book of Acts. Uh, Before that, they would just say about individuals they were in the way. That's how they would colloquially describe people that believed on the Lord. They'd call them followers of Jesus. They'd say they're in the way. But in the book of Acts, they are called Christians at Antioch for the first time. And it is a derisive term. You know what it means? It means a little Christ. Saying you ain't nothing but a bunch of little Christ. That's all you are. Hey, listen, glory to God. If, If in my life I never make another penny, if in my life nobody else ever knows my name, if in my life I never succeed another thing, but if God could look down from glory and say about me that I'm a little Christ, I'd say glory, hallelujah, my life has been a success. Called them little Christ. So what does that mean when we're not living in accordance with the truth of the Word of God? What would you look at your life? And if you, if you looked at your life and said, what does that person believe? What would your life testify of? They said they loved the Word of God. The only problem was they weren't living the Word of God. And if you're not living the Word of God, you don't love the Word of God. Uh, listen, I, I'm not talking about an unspotted, uh, unbroken record and, 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 and resume of perfection. You know me well enough. If you're thinking that this morning, it, I, my name's Toby Weber. We need to meet. All right. I'm not suggesting that we have to be perfect in the way that we live, but I'm saying this, we ought to strive for our lives to be biblical in nature. And if we're satisfied with our life being defined by the world's concepts of what is right and what is wrong, then at the end of the day, we're only satisfied with our Christianity going that far. We don't mind it being a component of our life, but we're just, after all, only slightly Christian in the way that we live. I see their wickedness. Verse number 10, I see a fourth thing. He says, Therefore will I give their wives unto others and their fields to them that shall inherit them. For every one, from the least even unto the greatest, is given to covetousness. From the prophet even unto the priest, every one dealeth falsely. I see their wantonness. What motivated them in their life? Well, the Bible uses the term covetousness. It's linked with the idea of lustfulness. In other words, their life was defined not by what God wanted, but by what they wanted out of life. Uh, How they lived their life was much more dictated and determined by their own desires and pleasures than it was by the truth of the Word of God. Can I say, listen, man, we're living in a day where people are people are focus grouping what church ought to be, try to find out what do people like, what do they enjoy. Uh, listen, I, we, we do a lot of things around here, and I don't know, sometimes I feel sort of bad, but we eat a lot around here. I don't feel bad about eating a lot, but but I, let me just say, the purpose of this church and everything that we do, we ought to be doing it, it ought to be centered on the Word of God. And I believe that it is. I believe that it is. Listen, we preach more around here than most churches do in 10 years. I mean, we find excuses to preach. Uh, we just we, we find you show up on a Tuesday night, we'll preach at you. But I am saying this, the purpose and function and goal of the body of Christ should not be to gratify self. It rather ought to be to glorify the Savior. That ought to be why we live. And by the same token, your Christianity should not be marked by what you enjoy, but rather by what the Word of God teaches. When you go and find a church, it ought not be based on what you enjoy. It ought to be based on what the Word of God teaches. Uh, Listen, when, when, when you worship the Lord, Uh, It ought to be based not on what you enjoy, but on what the Word of God teaches. One of the marks of slight Christianity is it is subservient to the impulses of the flesh. 
It is defined and shaped by what the individual desires rather than what God desires. I see their wantonness. And then finally look at verse 12. I see their worldliness. He says this, Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed. Then he says this, Neither could they blush. They had lost the ability to get embarrassed. You know, the only way that can happen is if you grow so at ease and so comfortable with whatever the embarrassing activity is that it no longer even registers as something that you ought to be ashamed of again. They had been thoroughly converted to the world system. So much so that when things that were an abomination to God take place, they didn't even know they were supposed to be bothered by it. That is how alien the biblical worldview had become to them. And it is probably the most apt and descriptive commentary of the church today. I'm going to tell you, man, I've been in this thing. I'm not old. I'm getting older. I'm not old like my sister is, but I'm getting older. But I've been in this thing for 11 years. And I, I listen, I'll tell you the truth of it. There, there are there are things that go on in church. There are things that take place in amongst the people of God. We know better. We ought to be bothered by. It ought to grieve us. It ought to break us up. And there are things going on in churches today in this country. You talk to people about sin and about brokenness and about righteousness and about holiness and about what these are. And sometimes, man, they'll just look at you like a calf staring at a new gate. You can tell they've never even heard the concept that our lives should be separate and different from what the world promotes. I'm talking about church kids, man. I'm talking about kids being raised up in the house of God. You talk about things like homosexuality, sodomy, depravity, wickedness of that sort. And they just look at you like it's strange that a Christian would call that wrong or disobedient to the Word of God. It is foreign to them that we would take a stand on that issue. Man, you talk about things like drunkenness, like addiction, like pornography, and people just stare at you like that's something we should have a problem with. You know what has happened? A a whole generation of Christians has been thoroughly initiated into the world system. And now, just that's the reason there's places in the world today that they'll throw you in jail for a hate crime just for quoting a King James Bible because it is so foreign to them. Now, how did that happen? Well, it happened through about one, maybe two generations of slight Christians that were satisfied with their Christianity being defined by whatever the world considered acceptable. I, I, I don't listen. I don't mean this in a braggadocious way. I, I, I really don't. I'm not what I need to be. I, 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 I listen. I, I when I preach messages like this, you think I'm preaching at you. I'm preaching at me. But, but let me tell you something. Hey, listen. There's well, my soul. I I'm trying to be careful, and I guess I just shouldn't be. Why does it bother us if the world is okay with how we live? Why has that ever bothered us? Why should we care? Everybody's all hung up on saying, I don't care what people think about me. Do you? Do you? Or are you obsessed with what people think about you? Obsessed that people may consider you to be a fanatic. Obsessed that people may consider you to be out of, out of keeping, out of style with, with the sensibilities of the world. You have seen the world, right? Is that what you want? Is that what you want for your children and your grandchildren? 
Is that what you want for your marriage? I'm not what I ought to be. But let me tell you something. I don't want that. That's not what I want. I've seen how that ends. I've seen the wickedness. I've seen the depravity of it. We need to get back to a place. I'm talking about in our Christianity where when we find ourselves running in the same lane as the world, we stop and begin to do a self-assessment and ask ourselves, is something wrong? Why, why, why are we going the same direction? Why are we going the same? Why are we running in the same lane? Instead, that's the only way. We're going to have to get comfortable with being out of style with the world. I'm not talking about fashion. I'm not talking about things of that sort. I'm talking about the way that we live our life. We're going to have to grow comfortable with the idea of sticking out and being different from the world around us if we're going to break free of the world system that has enslaved the mind of Christ in so many Christians. We're going to have to be willing to look at it and say, well, yeah, it's going to upset some people. Yeah, you know, there may be people who don't understand but they've never understood. There's going to be people that criticize. I got news for you. They're going to, somebody's going to criticize you no matter what. If, if nobody does and I find out, I'll criticize you just because I don't think it's fair that you ain't getting none. <laughs> At the end of the day, man, we're going. To, do we want to be slightly Christian? Or do we want to be thoroughly Christian? No more half measures. No more playing games. No more a few steps forward, but we stop short because we're so scared of what people might think if we ever really sold out to Christ. Instead, we need to jump in with both feet. Had the people of Judah done that, they would have never reached this place. Say, so, preacher, what's the answer to it all? Notice this and I'm done. Verse 21. For the hurt of the daughter of my people am I hurt. I am black. Astonishment hath taken hold on me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? In this passage, we have a prophetic glimpse of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see the substitutionary death. He says, for the hurt of the daughter of my people am I hurt. He died in our place. He took our hurt upon Himself. He says, I am black. Astonishment hath taken hold on me. That term, I am black, it denotes the idea of physical distress, a racial statement or an aesthetic statement, but it has the idea of distress, of of horror, of terror. He says, astonishment hath taken hold on me. That relates to the outpouring of God's judgment upon Jesus on Calvary. And then he asks this question, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Uh, That provides for us a new path, a new way, a new life in Him. And then he asks the question again, why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? In other words, whenever God looked at all their brokenness, He then looked forward to Calvary and He said, there's the answer. There's the answer. There's one that was not slightly a Christian, but was the very Christ Himself, was the very embodiment of God's holiness, the express image of God's glory, the very embodiment and manifestation of divinity and of righteousness. There's one that was sold out. You say, preacher, how do I get over this thing of like pushing a rock up a hill? I take two steps forward and then eight steps backwards, then two steps forward and then eight steps backwards. You've got to quit trying to push the rock. And let Christ live through you. Quit viewing this as a matter of you figuring and puzzling this thing out. And mortify self on the cross of Calvary. Say, what I think, what I desire does not matter. The way I live uh, is not mine to decide. My life is nothing. I'm going to follow the teaching of the Word of God, the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And as I submit my will to His will, His life is lived through me. And now it's no longer I. 
but it's Christ which liveth in me. In other words, we if we want to be thoroughly Christian instead of being slightly Christian, then we have to thoroughly submit to the Christ that makes us Christian. And if we'll let our life be mortified so that His life can become ours, then we'll get past this thing of just trying to trying to sort of incorporate Christ into our identity. And instead, it'll be His life and not our life. Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. If you've got business to do with the Lord, uh, then you come on. You, you shouldn't have to wait for a question to be asked or, or for the right, right statement to be made. If you know the Lord, if you're a Christian, if you've been saved, then just the fact that He's touching on your heart, that ought to be enough this morning. You ought to come down and meet Him at this altar and just bear your heart to Him. Let Him have His will and way. Let Him, whatever He says, don't argue with Him. Just let Him have His will and His way. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify Your Son. We ask it in His name.